from Psalm 47. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves, Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Amen. You may be seated. Well, welcome or welcome back to Nehemiah after a week off. Um, we are um, in the second half of, of Nehemiah today. We're going to start in chapter 8, but just a quick uh, run-through of 6 and 7, just to get our bearings. Um, Jim Hamilton, who, who authors one of the commentaries that I'm using, uh, talks about Nehemiah as the first half of it being about building the walls, and the second half being about building the people. And I think that's a good insight because that's where we're at. Uh, back in chap chapter 6, verse 15, uh, we have in the midst of a, a chapter on the, uh, the opposition trying to, to discredit or, or remove Nehemiah, we have just a, this is mentioned that, oh, and uh, on such and such day we finished the wall. And, and then it just continues on as though that's almost a side thought. And uh, so really for the remainder of our time, the focus uh, will not be on the wall at all, uh, other, other than we'll have a dedication of the wall ceremony in chapter 12. But, but it's really on God now working in the hearts of his people. And uh, so as interesting as bricks and rocks and mortar and gates and bars and everything is, uh, this is, this is even more uh, foundational, literally, for the people of God, what we're going to be in uh, the rest of the, the book. So in, in 6 and 7, uh, particularly in 7, uh, things were returning to everyday normal life in Jerusalem. They had the walls up, the gates in, and now they're assigning people tasks to manage things, guards. And an interesting thing happens that in Nehemiah 7, as God moves in, in Nehemiah's heart to really make an accounting of the people genealogically, if that's a word, yeah, I think it is, um, he uh, comes across the record of those who had come to uh, Jerusalem, to Judah in the first place about 80 years or so before who came with Jeshua and Zerubbabel. And that's what we had studied last winter in, in uh, Ezra. And so he records, starting in 7-5, uh, the, uh, 
the information, sorry, 7-6, the information there about all these folks and then their gifts. And a curious thing happens, which is, is worth looking at. So if you have, uh, like me, Nehemiah 7 on one side and uh, Ezra 2 on the other side, to, uh, to go back and forth, it is a curious thing to see. Ezra chapter 2, verse 70. Again, this is the original record of this. Ezra chapter 2, verse 70. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, temple servants lived in their towns and all the rest of Israel in their towns. Nehemiah 7, the first half of verse 73. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, and all Israel lived in their towns. Okay, so Nehemiah is still, it's like he's still reading from this account. Um, we keep moving on back to Ezra, chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in their towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. And uh, in the second half, now back to Nehemiah 7 or 73, when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns, and now we turn to chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. Okay, so, so far so good. We're still, people are gathering. Um, back to Ezra, chapter 3, verse 2. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel. So now we, you know, that's, that's what we would expect now to find in Nehemiah 8, if Nehemiah is still reading the account of what happened. But all of a sudden, back in Nehemiah 8, um, the middle of verse 1, these people who had gathered as one man in the square before the water gate told Ezra, the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So some, somewhere, and we just don't know where it is, Nehemiah stopped reading the account of, of the return of those exiles from 80 years before, but it sort of conflates itself right in, back into a modern day account of what, what's happening here in this happens to both happen, just happens to be, what a coincidence, just happens to be both in the seventh month which is, which is one of the high holy months in the Hebrew calendar. Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Feast of Booze. The people gather together. Um, and now, uh, he has clearly now moved away from reading uh, of the days of Jeshua and Zerubbabel when they built the altar, but he is now saying this is what's happening. So I just wanted to set the, the stage for you to see, because uh, that frankly, can get confusing uh, when, when there's not a, um, you know, sort of like a commercial break um, that you would see, and then somebody says, oh, oh now we're back to modern day, now we're, we're back to present day. So, so that's where we're at, and I put that little table in there for you just to, to just get your bearings again on dates and, and when things happened. Um, it speaks for itself, but I want you to see that when, when Ezra, the book of Ezra started, 
th those were events that were 80 or so years before the events later in Ezra, when e Ezra himself, the man, came to Jerusalem. And then a few years after that is when we get to the beginning of Nehemiah. So um, all that said, let's go on in Ezra 8. Um, in verse 2 then, right, the, the people had just asked, had told Ezra to bring this, uh, the book of the law. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. Okay. Um, we'll just go on into verse 3 as well. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So that's this... The, the verse gives us just a big overview of, of really what's uh, going to be described in more detail in the few verses uh, following this. <coughs> but it's an, it's an interesting thing that back in verse 1, uh, the people were telling Ezra to bring the book that the Lord had commanded Israel. And so you should ask the question, well, where, where's that command to, to do this? And, uh, well, we found it. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 31. So we're going to back up there briefly to see this. Deuteronomy chapter 31. Let me set the stage uh, for this just a little bit. It, this is at the end of, it's very near the end of Deuteronomy. Uh, in, in Deuteronomy 29, near the end of the ministry of Moses, the, the covenant is renewed at Moab. Um, <clears throat> and and uh, this, by the way, is your homework. Uh, from Deuteronomy 29 through what the part we'll read here this morning, I encourage you to go and see that because what, uh, what you will see, we won't read it right now, what you will see is an amazing connection between what's there and what what the people will be talking about here in Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. But, but in uh, Deuteronomy 29 and 30, the covenant is renewed. The people are reminded of the covenant blessings and curses. And when it comes around then to Deuteronomy 31, um, we, Moses calls Joshua, says, hey, my, my, my days are... are uh, about to end, I'm not going to go into the, cross the Jordan with you. You are to lead these people. Um, you see in 31 verse 6, be strong and courageous, do not fear or be in dread of them, for the Lord, it is the Lord your God who goes with you. Down to verse 9 then, at the, at the very end of this we have, then Moses wrote this law, now in, now in that economy of words, that economy of five words, we have Moses wrote this law, which might mean all of Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, 
At the end of every seven years, at the set time of the year of the release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. So this is the command that, that Moses is leaving with the people that, that as at this appointed time, he says, you know, every seven years, but it most likely became a more common event than that. But at least every seven years, gather the people, right? Um, the people didn't have these in their homes or in their pockets, right? Uh, they, they didn't have their own scripture except what they heard and what they put in their head, right? And so it was, it was a reason to gather to hear the word proclaimed. And you see the purpose um, in verse 12, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord their God, be careful to do all the words of the law, and verse 13, the same for those children who, who had not heard this before. So that's what we see playing out. We can go back to Nehemiah 8. Um, that's what is happening here in front of us. And uh, interestingly enough, <clears throat> it also looks like, and it could be an early form of what we would call a public worship service. So let me, let me read through verses 4 through 8. And you see the, the pieces of what, what are happening here. Remember, verse 3 gave us the, the overview of uh, Ezra facing the congregation, facing the people, uh, and reading from early morning till midday. Um, <clears throat> six hours, by the way. In case, case that ever, you ever concerned about a 70-minute sermon by Pastor Dan, uh, just come to Nehemiah 8. Right? Six hours. Um, you'll, you'll get over that. All right. Verse 4, down through verse 8. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, there are six names there on his right, and then there are seven names on his left hand. Verse 5, and Ezra opened the book, in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, there are 13 names there, uh, the Levites helped the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So there are these elements here of the people coming together for a specific purpose, and that is to hear the reading of the book, right? Um, attention is centered on the book. The one reading is on a platform high and raised up you know, for, for some very practical purposes to be able to hear uh, because 
their speaker systems weren't great in those days. Um, and uh, the book is open and the people rise. The people are blessed and the people bless God. Um, there is a prostration and uh, a bowing down. Um, then we see not only the proclamation of the word, but then also the explanation or interpretation. Uh, the, the, that word giving the sense so that the people understood the reading means doing something beyond just reading it again. It, it, it means helping the people to understand more rightly what it really means. It, it might be some translation if there were some who didn't have that, the language that, that it was being read in. And so it's, it's interesting to see. We'll, we'll see this this week, and it appears now that's going to be into next week as well. We're not going to get through chapter 10. Uh, the, the movement from the proclamation of God's word through the explanation or interpretation of it, and then we will see its impact on the people. Um, and this is what we do as well, right? We, we hope, right? Uh, we should rise up if this church ever should become something other than that, where, where the word of God is not central where we don't come expectantly looking, listening, waiting upon the word of God by the spirit of God to, to, to change us, to move us. Yeah. There is a reason why the very first thing that happens at 1015 is the proclamation of the word of God. Right? It, 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 is, it is not a standing up and saying, hey, good morning to each other and, or... or or even singing a song, right? The first thing is the proclamation of the word of God. And, and uh, I hope you're as thankful for that as I am. Um, yeah. All right. <clears throat> We're going to move into the next section, uh, verses 9 through 12. And we will see... Uh, this impact that the word of God is having on the people. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, probably Ezra, uh, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So uh, this, is, this is an interesting thing to see. One, one uh, note just historically to see is we have Ezra and Nehemiah in the same verse, right? Now finally these two books that used to be one book and these two characters, these two men, we have actually in the same place at the same time we see that. But... That's not the main point. The main point is 
the people are moved to tears by the truth of the word of God. And we need to ask ourselves, what happens in our hearts as the word of God is read? Whether it is you know, what we do in private or as, as a couple or a family or whatever, but, but the setting here is the people of God together, right? Are you ready and open for the word of God to move in your heart in this hour, in the next hour? Do you come expectantly? Um, what, what are you doing Sunday morning? What are you doing Saturday evening to prepare yourself for this time when we gather? Which is, which is a solemn but re, a, a joyous occasion for us to be together around the word of God. Um, if if be, Saturday evening, Sunday morning just become every other day to you, I encourage you to seek intentionality uh, about crying out to God that he would move in your heart by the reading of his word, by the proclamation of his word as we are together. Um, the, the people <laughs> are, are weeping and grieving such that in the span of these four verses, which, which seem like they just kind of happen, you know, in just a matter of a few minutes, three different times <laughs> there are different people. You know, you know, Ezra says, no, 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 don't weep. Don't be grieved. The Levites say, no, no, no. You know, it, this is a time of rejoicing. And for two reasons, right? First of all, a backup, right? So why, why are they weeping? It, it's because they have read the blessings, they have heard the blessings and the curses of the covenant read to them, and they know exactly where they stand, isn't it? Right? They, they, know, they know precisely on which side of that ledger they stand in the, in the blessings and the curses of the covenant. It, it is, a, it is a, a very good occasion for weeping and grieving and mourning. Absolutely. For if that were the end of the story, that, you know, if there were nothing more than just the judgment of God, it would be occasion for weeping, for mourning. But that's not all the covenant is, right? The covenant also has God's promise to keep, to save, to rescue, to make new. And we have that promise in Christ. And for that reason, uh, Ezra and the Levites are encouraging the people, no, 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 rejoice. Rejoice in understanding the entirety of this covenant. So two reasons specifically are given, they are worth uh, our time. One is uh, that this day is holy to the Lord. It is set aside. In a sense, um, Ezra is saying, this day really isn't about you. Th this is about him. This is about Yahweh. This is, this is a day holy unto him. Not, not first and foremost about you. So as, as we are re reminding ourselves of the covenant promises, we're reminding ourselves of the covenant promises of the creator and sustainer of the universe. Um, 
Um, so that's first first reason. So thinking on God's covenant faithfulness. The second is uh, a little ditty, uh, right? The, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Anybody remember that song from growing up? Joy of the Lord is my strength. Yeah, right? And for the first time this week, I actually studied on this. Well, what, is that, what does that mean? The joy of the Lord is your strength. And I think I've, I think I've had it wrong. Maybe you all have had it right. Um, uh, the joy of the Lord is, is not talking about my joy in the Lord. It's talking about his joy over his people. It's the joy of the Lord in very much the same way that it is the righteousness of Christ. Right? The righteousness of Christ is not my righteousness trying to emulate Christ. It is. It literally is the righteousness that belongs to Jesus Christ. And the joy of the Lord is not, first and foremost, me being joyful about the Lord. It is his joy. And he has proclaimed joy in himself and over his people. And that is strength for us, right? If, if, if I understand that the joy of the Lord is the Lord being joyful about rescuing, about redeeming, about choosing a people, and about preserving them all the way to the end, that's strength. Oh my goodness, that's strength. Yeah. So that was new and wonderful for me. Um, from a song from when I was four years old. And uh, so um, praise God for just, just little, little things like that uh, in his word. Yeah. So the, the, uh, the application, I think, is, is, is clear. Um, John 16, 8 um, tells us that, you know, that the spirit of God using the word of God is convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, um, which, which is by itself a reason to grieve and mourn and weep. Um, but for the one who has placed his or her faith in the finished work of Christ, there is, there is great occasion for rejoicing. Yeah. And for sharing that joy with those around us, right? So that's the picture. If, if someone in the, the community is not able to rejoice in this way, we share that truth. We, we, we invite, we give opportunity. Avail yourself of this grace. Avail yourself of this blessing. Yeah. All right. Let's go on. There's more I could say, but we're just, we won't even get through nine. Um, next day, verse 13. On the second day now, um, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths 
during the feast of the seventh month. We'll stop there. So now we're next day. This is uh, Tishri 2. That's the seventh month. Probably saying that wrong, but it's like October or something, October 15th. Tishri 2, Tishri the second. Um, and here they are. Now it's a smaller group that come back together, not only to read the word or hear it read, but now they're studying, right? So we see this movement, this pro progression that the word of God remains central, and now there is a study, there is an intense look at this. Um, and they are reminded uh, that in this month there is to be a celebration of what's called the Feast of Booths. Um, and uh, that is probably that they were reading from Leviticus 23. That's sort of the feast chapter. In case you want to go brush up on your feasts, it's a good place to go. You'll get almost all of them right there in one chapter. And so um, they, uh, the, the people then publish uh, throughout all the land, they proclaim uh, for the people to prepare for this. They've got a couple weeks. We get down to verse 17. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he, again probably Ezra, read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Um, so a couple things here. Um, the second half of, of uh, verse 17 can be a confusing one because it uh, says, from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, that is Joshua, right, from Moses to Joshua, that's Joshua, you know, fought the battle of Jericho, Joshua. Um, again, an inaccurate song, but anyway. <laughs> um, from that day until till this current day, it had not been so. Israel had not done so. Yet, in Ezra chapter 3, where we were earlier, we read a record of the people celebrating the Feast of Booze. I don't want to create confusion, but I want to clear it up. But let's see it first. Uh, Ezra chapter 3. Um, well, verse 4. And they kept the Feast of Booze as it is written. And on and on and on, talking about burnt offerings and this and that. So, so how do we understand this? Um, the main difference here, sorry, let's go back to Ezra again. We missed a piece. Verse 3. They set the altar in its place for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. Okay, remember that word, fear. Right Now back to Nehemiah, um, the end of verse 17, and there was very great rejoicing. Right? So I think that, that part of what's happening here when, when the, the author says it hadn't been this way since Joshua, son of Nun, is that the Feast of Booze had not been infused with 
its original and correct meaning, right? That the meaning, the essence of the feast, the celebration, was to be reminded of God's good hand rescuing them from Egypt and, and this time as they were led by pillar of cloud and pillar of fire and they were sustained by manna from heaven and water from rocks and on and on and their sandals didn't wear out and their clothes didn't wear out for 40 years. That's the point of the Feast of Booze. And it seems that in Ezra, Ezra's account, that, that this was more of the, at least in the people's hearts at that time, it was fear. That's one possibility. Another is that the Feast of Booze also, actually before it was called the Feast of Booze, if you go back to Exodus uh, 23, it was called the Feast of Ingathering. Happened to be the same thing. Um, we won't dig into that, but if you, if you wandered your way through Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 16, Leviticus 23, and looked at all three of those, you would say, ah, that Feast of Ingathering is the same thing as the Feast of Booze, and it was a harvest festival because it, it came at the end of the harvest season. So there may have been a different meaning for it during those years from the days of Joshua all the way up until our account here in Nehemiah that it may have been, had lost some of its significance, just became a routine. Well, seventh month, 15th day, time to cut some limbs down, okay, let's go camping in the tent of booze or whatever, you know, let's, let's go kids, it's, why do we do this? I don't know, we do it. Um, we, uh, it's possible, we don't know, but um, what, is, what is clear here is that there is rejoicing among the people as they're celebrating this because they recognize God's good hand in their lives. All right. How far have I getting, gotten in my notes? Verse 18, there it is. We didn't want to miss this one. Um, again, day by day, verse 18 from Nehemiah 8. Day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God, and they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So again, God's word remains central in the lives of the people. All right. On to chapter 9 we go. Verses 1 through 3. This is the, the same month that the, the Feast of Booze was, was the 15th through the 22nd. 15th through the 21st were the seven days, and then on the eighth day is this 22nd. Now we're at the 24th, a couple days later. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and they worshiped the Lord their God. Okay. So, again, now the, the people, after having heard the word of God on the first day, 
of Tishri for six hours, and then having heard it um, these seven days during the Feast of Booze, are now back. Th this, is, this is not an organized feast or festival. This is just the, the people are moved to come and confess and worship. Um, this is what the Word of God does, right? It has been read, it has been explained, and in, in worshiping through the Feast of Booze, they are applying it to their own lives, and now they are taking action. We may or may not get to those actions at the end of this chapter today, but they're there. And so it is an amazing thing to see what the Word of God uh, regularly applied to the life of the follower of God will do. Um, this has been called now in verse 6 uh, through most of the rest of chapter 9 as the fullest theological summary of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, we're just going to make a run at it. So, uh, let's go. Verse 6. Um, this is the people crying out and what they are proclaiming and confessing to God. Um, verse 6. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So very quickly, um, this is one of those places where you can have your mind attuned to the attributes of God and be looking for places to learn about God. What does this tell me about God as I read this? Um, so as we go through this, just, just look for those things. But this first bit, you are the only God, you are the creator God, you are the sustainer God, you are the God to be worshipped. Next section, verses 7 and 8, is Abraham. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of, the Ur, out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. So we see God choosing, calling, naming, and keeping promise, and being declared righteous. By the way, as we go along through this uh, proclamation, good morning, we're in Nehemiah chapter 9 right now. Um, as, as we go through this, I will uh, give you the same conviction I, that gave to myself during the week, and that is, who's the subject of my prayers? Who am I talking about? I'm talking about myself far too, far too much, about God far too little. Who's the hero of your prayers? Do I spend more time 
sort of vindicating myself and my own behaviors, or am I really adoring and worshiping God as I pray? And uh, how much of your prayers are declarative statements, and how, many of, how much of your prayers are requests? I'll give you a, a clue. We're not, we're not going to get to a request until verse 32 um, here, and we're in verse 8 so far. Um, so let that, let that lay on your heart about, you know, what does my prayer life, how, my communication with God, what does that look like? Next section, verse 9, chapter 9, verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. So again, we see it, they're just piling on. God, you, you saw your people. You heard their cry. You, you saved them and you destroyed their enemies, your enemies. Verse 12, we're in the desert. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But... You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. So the people are reminding themselves of God's goodness. Forty years in the wilderness and sustained and kept every day. Every day in a desert. Um, even in the midst of their rebellion and their desire to turn back, God 
was merciful to them. All right. In the land, this kind of catches us up to where Keith has been preaching in Joshua now. Verse 22, you gave them kingdoms and peoples <clears throat> and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness." So again, God is, is giving blessing. He's conquering peoples in front of his people, uh, paving their way, uh, keeping his promise. Uh, now, verse 26 begins a cycle uh, of the people rebelling, God disciplining, the people crying out, God rescuing, people rebelling, God disciplining, people crying out, God rescuing. Does that sound familiar? Right. We, won't, we won't read it uh, because our time is just running away from us, but I mean, that's me, that's you, you know it, and and. Again, it's not really about us. They still haven't asked anything. They were, the only thing they've said about themselves is how faithless they are. Right? But we are promised that when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Right? And that's what they are proclaiming here. And this is the same God today that the people of Israel are praying to and speaking about here. So we do get in verse 32 to their one request. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all the people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. So their, their, their request really is, God, um, take notice. Don't, don't overlook us. Um, take notice. But they are quick in verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. So they are, they are quick to understand that it is not God's fault of what has come upon them. Right? For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. And then there's a whole litany of, uh, through the rest of the verses there, of, of their, uh, their wickedness. Um, this is an echo of the prayer from Nehemiah chapter 1, to listen 
to attend to the, to the calls of your people, not because we deserve it, right? Not, not, not because we deserve it. It is only the good grace and mercy of our God that, that he attends to, to anything uh, that we suffer. Um, yeah. The chapter ends um, with now with, with what they have done. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So what the people have effectively done is they are making a covenant to keep the covenant. They are, they are, re, they are themselves renewing their part of the covenant promises. And we're going to have to wait till next week to see what those really are. I really wanted to get all that together. Eight, nine, and ten need to be glued together, um, but uh, and all in the Lord's timing. Uh, so come back next week. Let's pray. God, indeed, you are good and merciful. Your steadfast love astounds us. God, even as we read of your people's faithlessness and we know that we are numbered in that same way god that that we get distracted that we turn away we worship other things with our time with our energy with what you have given us and god we confess that that is true more than it should be and we ask god that you would continue to be merciful that you would move in our hearts so that we would rightly obey, that we would rightly seek after you, that we would hunger and thirst for righteousness every moment of our lives. We thank you for this proclamation from your people so many years ago that, that rings true, that reminds us of your good and faithful hand in the lives of your people. And we know it is true today in the lives of your people here. We thank you again for your word. And may it continue to do uh, its work by your spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.